This is Study Sessions, brought to you by Sex Ed Debunked. In these mini-sodes, we'll discuss a myth suggested to us by listeners like you. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sex Ed Debunked to suggest new myths, provide your own show notes, and give us ideas for what to talk about next. Now take some notes. The study group is in session. This is Study Sessions, a bi-weekly mini-sode where we cover topics brought to us by Sex Ed Debunked listeners. On this week's episode, we are taking the study part of Study Sessions literally and talking about some of the trending research topics in sex education. So not necessarily brought to us directly by Sex Ed Debunked listeners, but definitely brought to us by people who would be interested in listening. This is so true. And you guys, uh, our listeners might recall that we had a similar episode last year when I came back from the sexuality conference in Vancouver, Canada. Well, they had another annual conference this year, this time in New Orleans. New Orleans, the big easy. And the official uh, name of the society is the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, otherwise known as QuadS. And they bring together literally sex researchers from all over the world to present what's new and up and coming in research to um, sex educators, sex therapists, counselors, and people who are just generally interested in getting more information about what's going on, especially in light of what's going on in our country and the world these days. So yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And I think, you know, every year I'm sure there are similar topics that are discussed, but what we thought would be fun and intriguing for this study session is to talk about some of the topics that maybe we haven't thought about so much. So we're going to give you a, a top five hottest and trendiest in uh, coming in from the big sleazy. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the big easy, which I is said what I said. All right. <laughs> I said what I said. So, so I'm going to start with one that maybe is a little bit sobering, but also really, really important and something that we really, um, we've only touched on. We had the one episode on, on pornography, not being real sex, but the plenary of the distinguished speaker and researcher at this conference was Debbie Hermanick, who is been researching for many years out of the Kinsey Institute in mm-hmm. Indiana University. And she had a talk on the rise of rough sex, what we've learned and what sexuality researchers, educators, and clinicians need to know. Interesting. So what do we mean by rough sex? And tell me how we know it's on the rise. Well, it's it, first of all, one, rough sex is beyond what we might think of as BDSM and kink. Mm -hmm. It is uh, choking, punching, slapping, um, spanking, hitting, tying, restraining, but in a way that's not necessarily part of quote unquote BDSM or kink, but actually in a way that's become quite mainstream. And that's the part that's a little bit troubling and troubling because it seems to be a global trend. So this isn't research that was just done in the U.S. This was done across the world. Um, And what they're saying, and and just listen to these statistics, which are really stunning. Um, One in four teens have sent or received a sext and 80% of young adults, including college students, have engaged in rough sex. 80. Oh my gosh. Zero. And I will say anecdotally, um, I have a group of students who are presenting this week on pornography use. And I said to them, hey, you know, 
which I'm sure is the other half of your question, why? And the answer is internet pornography and social media. And I said, you know, it really has increased rough sex, things like choking. And these Mm -hmm. students, these three very bright students said to me, that came from porn? It's like basically what we do all the time. Oh. Yeah. But, okay. Okay. So it's... Okay. So the, the woman who was presenting on this, you're used to the plenary speaker was the one that was t- talking about this? Yeah. Debbie Herbenick. Interesting. And from the Kinsey, which some of our listeners may remember the Kinsey scale and the Kinsey Institute continues to do work um, in sex research, but 80%. Oof. Well, and this is, so this is the title of her new book. It's called, Yes, Your Kid. <laughs> And, and the book is actually much broader than Rough Sex. It's actually a book designed to help parents who have young teens and, you know, to help around sexual communication because parents think that's happening to other kids. Mm. And the interviews of young college students that were done as part of this book said that most learned about rough sex between eighth and 10th grade. Oh boy, that is disheartening at best. Well, except except that this book offers a real good solid guide to communicating and makes parents aware of it. So the idea is like if you're armed with knowledge, then you can find the tools to actually talk to your stu- your your kids. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to the second study that I wanted to mention, and it was not as it was a presentation, not a big plenary speech, but there was um, a researcher, Dr. Renee Rena Evans Paulson, PhD, mm-hmm. who had a presentation also looking at the connection between pornography use and sexual violence and dating violence, and mm-hmm. found that. The buffer against that connection was critical media literacy. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. But it means that to the extent that we teach our young, you know, children, nephews, nieces, our young people to look at what they see on the internet and porn and social media and TikTok with a critical eye. It actually works as a protective factor, which I think is kind of encouraging that if parents and adults and caregivers can get the courage to have these conversations, yeah, research suggests that it can make a substantial difference. Yeah, it's interesting not to derail that particular point, but I remember when I was doing research in my communications you know, master's program, one thing we talked about was the importance of uh, engaging and, and that critical media lens, you know, because kids or parents who let their kids watch a lot of TV get a lot of flack, right? Because like, oh, they're not going to learn. They're going to poison their brains. Actually, if they watch TV, but you engage in critical discussions about it, that can be really good for them. It helps them develop theory of self. It helps them develop critical thinking. So similarly, yeah, if you watch, yeah, you're, I mean, you're going to, if you don't have the ability to critically analyze information, then of course you are going to be more easily succumbing to mis mistruths 
Well, and like we had the episode on the myths that porn sex is real sex, right? And we know that's a myth, but if you are in eighth grade, maybe you don't. If you have, if you're not getting comprehensive sex education in your school, you might think that what you're seeing on the internet is actually closer to reality than it really is. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Shannon, that's one of the recommendations in Debbie Herbenick's book is if something is too difficult to talk about it, find some media and talk about it in the context of the media that you're watching as a framework for communication. Right. Interesting. Yeah, pretty. Oof, yeah. It's, it is. It's rough though. I, I like the name of the book though. Yes. Your kid, not yeah, somebody else's. Shannon, I literally, when, as soon as I got back from the conference, I literally went on Amazon and bought it. And then right. I also emailed the librarian at Wesleyan to make sure it would be on the shelves at Wesleyan university. So it's that important, but um, let's shift to something a little lighter and interesting that we (laughs) something that's not as rough. You might say not as rough. No, a little more gentle. (laughs) Mm, Great. Love that. (laughs) Actually something that I've absolutely never really thought about in a comprehensive way, which is saying a lot. Um, It was a talk on eco-sexuality. Well, that is really interesting. It was so cool. Sex. It's good for the planet. Well, we talked, we did talk a little bit about sustainable uh, sex toys when we had our episode on Love Not War, where they made, you know, environmentally friendly sex toys, but this took it to a whole new level. So Dr. Amanda Morgan was talking about the idea of not as the earth being your earth mother, but being your earth lover. And if you, treated, if you treated the earth in the same way you treated a lover, we would be much more likely to be to be kind to the earth and to do things that are going to sustain it. So that was kind of like her foundation and her framework. Mm-hmm. But, and I will, uh, I've emailed her to try to get her slides because then she went through all these ways, like for a lot of people, they want to be eco-friendly, right? We're, we hate, we hate the idea of climate change. We want to make a difference. Well, she went through a list of eco-friendly sex toys, mm-hmm. um, based on how they're made, what the materials that they come from. There's actually, there was an eco-friendly um, butt plug, believe it or not, made of wood. Oh no, I don't believe it. <laughs> but made of wood, but made of wood that had a very natural laminate to it. That was actually really kind of sustainable and healthy. <laughs> it sounds kind of nice. It was actually, if you could put it on your mantle and no one would know it was a sex toy. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But also eco-friendly lube, eco-friendly condoms, all those things that are being naturally. So looking at both the materials that are used and also how how they are created in terms of a sustainable um, a sustainable corporation, a sustainable manufacturing, all of that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but then there was one area that was I was really kind of outside the box, shall we say? Okay. Talking about actual ecosexuality and two researchers out in Las Vegas who are want a movement to have it the E be added to the LGBTQ as, as ecosexual meaning. And she showed all of these clips of people basically like naked rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> I am one with the dirt. 
So for any of our listeners who are curious, um, she also showed a clip from Greenpeace, which as you know, is like the climate environmental activist group called Forest Love. And it was images of the forest and the overlay was lovemaking sounds. It was outstanding. Oh, I mean, it's weird. That's like a weird mix between like ASMR, but also kind of like, you know, there are a lot of wellness practices, of course, around the earth and sustainability, and right? Like, like mud baths or thing. Like, yeah. And she actually said that, you know, it, when if you think about it, and I, I I know that we've experienced it, when you go out and you see like this amazing sunset and you go, oh, and it's that feeling of awe, which is almost erotic and almost sexual so that it's not necessarily, you don't have to take it literally as the earth, as your lover, but certainly <laughs> you can have a very um, erotic sensual experience being in touch with the earth. And there are a lot of people who, who practice that on, on a regular basis, just might not call it eco-sexuality. Yeah. I got, okay. No, I'm bought. I'm bought. I get it. I mean, sustainability is a uh, huge part of the modern consumer. It might as well be a huge part of the modern bedroom too. Well, or, or, well, outdoor bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So it was pretty cool. So, and coming back again, looping back to the issue of consent, right? So we were talking about porn and, and how that impacts, you know, consent and dating violence and all of that. So there was one researcher, Anna Thrash, who had a poster and I, I was attracted to it because the title of the poster was, Hey, chat GPT, mm-hmm. what is sexual consent? Oh, I really want to believe that it said good things. I really want to believe that it said good things. <laughs> well, it did. Oh my God. Okay, great. <laughs> and I know you know more about AI than I do, but if if AI is is if someone's asking these questions of the AI and the AI comes up with an answer that is current, currently talking about you know, enthusiastic consent, all the fries things we've talked about, right? Freely given, specific, can be withdrawn at any time. What does yeah. that mean to you? What does that mean to you, oh AI expert? <laughs> well, it means that the aggregate information that is being pulled by AI is all pointing to accurate definitions of consent. Like that's I'm actually flustered over how well the robots did on this one. Yes! That is well, and and let me say, I've actually been on another podcast talking about the problems with AI, and there are a lot of ethical issues with AI, but that's because a lot of the internet is problematic. And so, you know, again, because AI is based on aggregate data, you often get the bias towards whatever the majority right. perspective is. <clears throat> so to hear that, the reason why I'm excited, if anyone doesn't totally put this together, is that it means that the majority of information that's on the internet about consent is about informed consent and is actually pulling in the true definition of consent, not just merely saying no, but actually getting that affirmative yes. Exactly. And, and uh, there was a whole, a series of questions around consent. And, you know, there were even questions about, you know, um, scenarios, you know, if somebody had X amount to drink and, you know, appeared drunk, could they consent? No. I mean, like, they got the answers right. And, and I think 
it shows that some of these these messages are actually I think becoming the majority. So that's pretty great, I think. And and pretty great from this perspective of maybe a young um young person, a teen saying, "Oh, okay, I'm going to ask ChatGPT what consent is." And they get the right answer. I'm not sure who it is that you think talks like that. I'd like to meet them. Um but point taken. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, um I think we had two more we wanted to discuss briefly. So the one of the ones that I thought was really interesting because it was based in Rhode Island. Hey, hey. Um, I was chatting with a researcher from the who was commissioned by the Rhode Island Department of Health to work on a new survey measure for gender. Because as we as we know, and, and me and you obviously as researchers, you get the question of what is your gender? Male, female. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly not appropriate. And this researcher was actually tasked with the with um, the job of saying, well, how many trans gender diverse people live in Rhode Island? And basically she said, I got nothing to measure that. <laughs> develop I don't know else. that. <laughs> So it's very much a, still a work in progress, but what their efforts are is to take what used to be a b- very bad one question scale, which merged into a sort of better two question scale, which generally is something like what sex were you assigned at birth? And then what is your current gender? To add a third step, which allows for open-ended responses, and really importantly, on the question of what is your gender, allows people to answer and check more than one checkbox. Nice. So Rhode Island is is making progress. Hopefully, they're hoping that they're going to do one more, I think, uh, when I talk to her, they're going to do another round of, you know, testing of the data and testing of the scales. But mm-hmm. they're hoping they're going to have something um, something done and up and running within the next year or so. You know, something I really have loved about doing this podcast is realizing that our little state does try its best to lead the way in, in a lot of things. Like, of course, we did the interview last year with the Rhode Island Department of Health and their launching of that, you know, comprehensive sex ed the app. Right app. Yeah, the right yeah, app. yeah. And like... You know, it makes me it makes me proud of our little state because if if you can't get the little people to start doing it, then you're not going to get the big ones to start doing it either. <laughs> well, and some of this, and actually, the researcher, one of the researchers on the chat GPT one was from was affiliated with Brown. So there's some good stuff coming out of Rhode Island, and um, I'm proud of it, little Rhodey too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's the last one? What are we wrapping with? Well, the last one is uh, is one more push, and because of our because of the nature of our podcast is, you know, sex ed debunked and pushing the need for more comprehensive sex education. Well, a study was done by um, a number of researchers at James Madison University, looking and the title, an unsurprising and scary study, <laughs> hmm. overestimation of sexual health knowledge of college students regardless of previous sex health education. Oh. So basically what they did is it's like your classic if you ever heard of Dunning-Kruger, right? People 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 know a heck of a lot less than they think they know. Yeah. Yeah, so to put that in in layperson's terms for anyone who was like, "Wait, what does that mean?" It means that people are assuming they know more than they actually do about sex ed. 
Right. And so the way they structured this survey is they asked um, participants, college students, they asked them to first take a series, I think it was like a series of four or six questions about how much do you think you know about, you know, sexual anatomy, sexual pleasure, all these things, and rate how confident you are in that knowledge. And the participants had a high rating for what they thought they knew, 85%, very Mm, high. mm -hmm. However, (laughs) then they gave them a 30-question test on sexual health knowledge based on actual questions. Yeah. Scores were about 17.9%. This is giving, this is giving Alabama and their estimations of certain sizes of things, energy. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know as much as you think, you know? Yeah. So, and, and the bottom line is they said that most 68% rated their sex knowledge as high as, as high, mm. but they show actually scored less than 50%. And <sighs> yeah. So, so what does that mean? Like, like, let's boil that down because we do feel like the reason people are estimating that presumably is because they are getting sex education. So what, what do we pull away from that? They're getting sex education, but the sex education isn't matching up with actual sexual knowledge. Well, I think, I think, two things. I think college students think that they have sexual education because they either have sexual experience or they have watched a lot of social media and internet porn. So Mm -hmm. they think they know things simply because they have watched it and absorbed it from other, other ways. The flip side of it is that they haven't gotten actual comprehensive sex education that would cover these 30 questions. I mean, looking at the tests that they used on sexual knowledge, these were not hard questions. These (laughs) were basic questions that if you had comprehensive sexual education between K and 12, you would know the answers to these questions. I was I was talking about this study to my roommate just before we went on the podcast and she was saying that she was looking at, um, I would say she was relaying a conversation that she saw on social media, but the gist of it was that a guy was talking to his girlfriend and the girlfriend started laughing hysterically. And she said, Oh my God, I'm laughing so hard. I'm going to pee in my pants. And this college guy was like, well, how can you do that? You have your period. Aren't you wearing a tampon? So uh, didn't actually realize that they were separate. Okay. Yeah. No, that's scary. I would but, say. But it's, it's, it is scary, but it's important to realize that we cannot assume that just because students and maybe our kids or our nieces, nephews, whoever, just because they're in college, they actually have a base of knowledge. And and I can confirm that, you know, when I was teaching psychology of human sexuality at UConn, I had grown a grown ex-military guy come up to me and say, oh my God, I never learned this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's scary. And as we've, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not, I don't know, scary is like one word for it, but it's, it's also disappointing. And, you know, as we've talked about on the show, it's, there's just such a ripple effect of that, not having that education, overestimating that education. Like it really can lead to unintentionally much riskier sexual behaviors when you don't know what you don't know. Well, it does. And it's true. But I also think that this type of research, Shannon, really is 
really underlining even more and emphasizing even more the need to have comprehensive sex education. Because you can't assume that simply because someone reaches the age of 18, 19, 20, 25, Mm -hmm. they have the actual sexual knowledge they need to really explore sex in a healthy, safe, and pleasurable way. Yep. You know, and I think that although you kind of use that adjective of scary for some of this research, I guess for me being in the research field, I say this is this is evidence. You know, I came out yeah, of the sure. and yeah. now I'm in the research field. And this is evidence. This is evidence to take to policymakers at every level to say, we still need this. We're mm-hmm. still doing a terrible job. And if we we want to, you know, reduce stigma, reduce suicidality for, you know, sexual and gender minorities, if we want to reduce dating violence, if we want to reduce sexual assault, if we want to reduce, you know, situations of non-consent, education really is the answer. And Mm -hmm. that's what this research is all across the board, this whole conference. The bottom line is the more we know, the more we know and the more we educate, you know, the better off we're all going to be at every single level of our society. Boom. 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 Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. No, that makes sense. It is. It's good to know that you have empirical evidence to support that there is still work that needs to be done. Well, and the work is being done. And you know what? The work, the chat GPT study says the work is, is getting done because at least on consent and out there. So maybe we just keep like shouting from the the podcast <laughs> to the airway. podcast rooftop. That's right. The po- and say keep doing it, and we'll try to we'll try to influence what ChatGPT finds and AI yeah. finds. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into the algorithm, and it'll it'll all be good. It's all about that algorithm. Exactly. Hey, we're getting so close to those twenty thousand downloads, people. Just keep listening to this one over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Find our shortest episode and listen to it about twenty times, and we'll be in business. We'll be all set. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, that is our recap of just some of the trending research in sexuality and sexual health right now. Um, maybe some surprises for you. Maybe some topics you'd like to hear more about. If so, let us know. We can uh, continue to share the research. And as usual, we will be back next Wednesday with another episode of Sex Ed Debunked. Take care, everyone. Bye now. Sex Ed Debunked is produced by Trailblaze Media in Providence, Rhode Island. Our sound producer is Ezra Winters with production assistance from Shay Weintraub.